Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Cracking down on gun violence. That's what President Biden is touting today as he announces new ghost gun regulations. But how effective will this be and how does it relate to Second Amendment rights? The border crisis continues as record numbers of illegal immigrants are apprehended. But now, growing concern as smugglers take in new recruits, American teenagers. Georgia voters are being crushed by inflation with an average 10.6% increase since last year. And with the midterm elections heating up, voters may look to candidates for some answers. Florida Republicans and Democrats unite under a new initiative signed by the governor investing millions into fathers. This to tackle what lawmakers are calling a nationwide fatherhood crisis, fueling incarceration, homelessness and suicide. This is the crisis of America today. This is the civil rights movement of our time. Former President Trump has endorsed TV show host Dr. Oz in the Pennsylvania Senate race. Oz says he's going to put America first, but some Pennsylvania residents aren't buying it. Ukraine says tens of thousands of people have likely been killed in Russia's assault on Mariupol. And the U.S. warns that Russia seems to be making preparations in the Donbass region. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. As Russian forces continue to attack the eastern port city of Mariupol, Pentagon spokesperson John Kirby pointed out that Russia appears to be making plans for something larger. It does seem to be a mix of, of, uh, of personnel carrying vehicles as well as uh, armored vehicles and maybe some artillery, maybe some, uh, some enabling capabilities. Um, not exactly clear, but this does seem to be an early effort by them to, to reinforce their efforts in the Donbass. Ukrainian President Zelensky described the situation in Mariupol. Mariupol has been destroyed. There are tens of thousands of dead. But even despite this, the Russians are not stopping the offensive operation. They want to make Mariupol a demonstratively destroyed city. If confirmed, it would be by far the largest number of dead so far reported in one place in Ukraine. Moscow denies attacking civilians. Jason Perry, NTD News. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson visited Ukraine over the weekend and walked the streets with Ukraine's President Zelensky. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan was asked on MSNBC if President Biden has any plans to visit Kyiv. Sullivan said no, but added that Biden sits in the Situation Room on a daily basis, coordinating the delivery of weapons to Ukraine. And in Washington, D.C. today, India's Defense Minister visited the Pentagon for strategic talks just after President Biden spoke with India's Prime Minister. India has held a neutral stance on the Russian invasion and is still importing Russian oil. The Biden administration is working to deepen its relations with India to build a stronger opposition against both Russia and China. But how is India reacting? NTD's Melina Wisecup has the details. The U.S. and India are both supporting Ukraine with humanitarian assistance, but as for how to hold Russia accountable for this invasion, the two countries are not on the same page. In a virtual meeting at the White House today, President Biden urged India's prime minister to take a tough stance on Russia. The United States and India are going to continue our close consultation on how to manage the destabilizing effects of this Russian war. India is still importing Russian oil and abstained from voting to remove Russia from the UN Human Rights Council. The countries called for independent investigations into the killings in Ukraine. I spoke several times on the phone to the presidents of both Ukraine and Russia. I not only appealed for peace, but also suggested that there be direct talks between President Putin and the president of Ukraine. But Russia is not the only country at the top of discussion between the two countries. The People's Republic of China is attempting to challenge and undermine the sovereignty of its neighbors. Beijing is eroding the security of the Indo-Pacific region from its construction of dual-use infrastructure along your border to its unlawful claims in the South China Sea. India's defense minister did not directly comment on China or Russia. 
Defense Secretary Austin welcomed India's Defense Minister to the Pentagon today for strategic discussions about how to strengthen their defense partnership to maintain peace and security in the Indo-Pacific. And China has ramped up its military posture in the South China Sea. China is also accelerating its nuclear weapons buildup. The Wall Street Journal reports that more than 100 suspected missile launch facilities were uncovered in China's western region this year. And analysts say these facilities could be used to store nuclear-tipped missiles that are capable of reaching the U.S. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Record numbers of illegal immigrants are being apprehended at the southwest border. And according to U.S. Customs and Border Protection, a growing number of the smugglers are American teenagers. NTD's Chenny Wu has the story. The sun has yet to rise as Border Patrol agents along the U.S.-Mexico border detain the latest groups of illegal immigrants. The driver, in many cases, a minor. They're told that nothing's going to happen to them. Uh, and they're told that if, if they go fast enough, we're going to stop pursuing them. U.S. Border Patrol says that around one in four drivers caught smuggling immigrants last year in the area around Sunland Park, New Mexico, were children, nearly all U.S. citizens. The teen drivers can earn hundreds of dollars per immigrant and are often told that they won't face legal consequences because they're minors. But the job can be dangerous. Once they flee, you know, the, the community as a whole uh, is in danger. The, the juvenile themselves, because uh, more than likely they're not very experienced in driving and uh, driving at those speeds uh, and it's not in a straightaway, uh, there's a potential for, for a major accident. Uh, we've had a... a in 2020, during a pursuit by authorities, an El Paso teen wrecked a sedan crammed with 10 people. Four local teens died along with three immigrants. Border Patrol said that in many cases, the chase is called off if the driver enters heavily populated or school areas. The mayor of Sunland Park said the consequences of such criminal activity could also act as roadblocks in the children's futures. I think this is a big issue because first and foremost, the last thing that we want to do is criminalize our youth. He adds that there's no easy fix to this problem and that immigration reforms to stem illegal crossings are nowhere in sight. Chenny Wu, NTD News. More illegal immigrants are expected to enter the U.S. once Title 42 is lifted. And the Biden administration is proposing to overhaul the immigration system in other ways. The host of NTD's The Nation Speaks, Cindy Drucker, visited the southern border and talked with a former immigration judge to find out more. Andrew Arthur was an immigration judge for eight years and now serves as a resident fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies. He tells NTD how the current asylum application process works. Right now, asylum seekers are referred to an immigration court where the government is represented by an attorney who can cross-examine the applicant and appeal an erroneous decision. But the Biden administration plans to change that. Under the Biden administration's proposal, those individuals would be interviewed by an asylum officer. There would be no government attorney uh, present. There would be no contrary evidence. There would be no cross-examination and there would be no appeal. So what this is going to do is it will likely uh, increase the number of aliens who are granted asylum in the United States uh, erroneously. Arthur because, says uh, the asylum officers will conduct an interview with the applicant. The officer will make a decision and the interview will be transcribed. If the officer denies asylum, the case will automatically go to the immigration court. But unlike today where formal asylum applications are filed, those uh, immigration judges are going to be expected to rule just based on the transcript and any, any additional uh, testimony that's solicited. So it's going to be much more difficult for immigration judges to hear those cases. It's going to be a burden on the court system. The former immigration judge says the biggest concern he has about this new process is that individuals who don't have valid asylum claims will exploit the system. He notes that many human smugglers coach illegal immigrants into saying the right things. And unfortunately, this process will be subject to fraud and abuse. Uh, it's going to swamp uh, the asylum officers. It's going to swamp the immigration court system. But the worst part is that it's going to encourage more people to enter the United States illegally. It's a deadly trek to this country. Most migrants who undertake that journey don't know how dangerous it is to come here. Arthur also expresses concern that the asylum officers won't be able to get enough resources to deal with the number of illegal immigrants. 
To catch the full interview, tune into a two-part series on the border crisis on The Nation Speaks with Cindy Juker this Saturday at 11 a.m. right here on NTD. Inflation is particularly bad in Georgia, according to the most recent Consumer Price Index. As the midterm election cycle is heating up, economists have some suggestions. NTD's Arlene Richards has that story. Georgians are getting pummeled with inflation costs, with consumer prices jumping by an average of 10.6% over the last year. There's no relief in sight, so inflation is high on voters' and candidates' minds. Economists say inflation is up 8% across the country, but supply chain issues and transportation costs may be driving inflation higher in Georgia. Professor John Edmonds says a major factor is grain sitting in Russia waiting to be shipped. I would say what the candidates have to explain to the voters is this isn't really about anything local. This isn't about anything coming out of Washington either. This is, this is a, a direct and immediate consequence of what's happening in, uh, in the Crimea and particularly uh, the ports around the Crimea. You can't get the grain out. Professor Michael Bussler has another take. Number one, reverse Biden's energy policy. Allow the Keystone Pipeline to be built. Had they not canceled it last January, almost 900,000 barrels a day would be flowing uh, to refineries, and uh, that would help increase the supply and uh, relieve some of the inflationary pressure. He has four suggestions for political candidates. These are to reverse Biden's energy policy, convince the government to stop paying people not to work and spending money they don't have, and convince the Federal Reserve to stop stimulating the economy. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. Former President Donald Trump has endorsed Dr. Oz for the Pennsylvania Senate. The TV host says he's going to put America first. But some voters are saying they aren't so sure about that. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. TV show host Dr. Mehmet Oz may have a better chance of winning the Pennsylvania Senate race after former President Trump endorsed him over the weekend. But some Pennsylvania voters weren't sure what to make of the announcement, so they called Dave Ball, who is the chairman of the Washington County Republican Party of Pennsylvania. On Sunday, I probably had uh, 20 or 30 calls from people in the area. And, and the questions were, you know, what's going on? Uh, what's he thinking? Um, why? He said the callers weren't really upset about the endorsement, but mostly they were confused. He gave an example. President Trump endorsed Sean Parnell um, early in the campaign. Uh, Sean Parnell is very popular around here. And then he goes and endorses Oz. And these are two very, very different people. Um, nothing similar at all. And people looked at it and said, how can you do something as dissimilar as endorsing those two people? There's absolutely nothing uh, similar between them. Oz entered the Senate race late after former Republican candidate Sean Parnell dropped out of the race amid a publicized custody battle over his children. And since Trump's endorsement of Oz, videos have emerged on the Internet showing the TV host having discussions where he appears to be a supporter of Obamacare and a woman's right to have an abortion. He said, oops, all of a sudden I need to be, you know, pro-Second Amendment. I need to be, uh, you know, pro-life. I need to be... Uh, a number of things to fit into the the expectation of what a conservative Republican would be. So, okay, I'm going to be one of them. In Trump's endorsement, he says Oz is very pro-life, very strong on crime, the border, and election fraud, among other things. Trump also said he believes Oz will be the one most able to win the general election. We reached out to Oz for comment, but we didn't hear back before airtime. Jason Perry, NCD News. President Biden today announced a new rule on ghost guns. What does it entail, and what are some of the key points of contention? NTD's Iris Tao has more. These guns are weapons of choice for many criminals. Cracking down on ghost guns, President Biden on Monday renewed his call to fight gun-related crimes. We're going to do everything we can to deprive them of that choice. And when we find them, put them in jail for a long, long time. Ghost guns are those made from kits purchased online and without serial numbers, thus rendering them untraceable. 
The White House said about 20,000 of them were recovered across the country last year. I mean, you can't connect the gun to the shooter and hold them accountable. The new regulations would require anyone buying such a kit to undergo a background check, as is required for buying commercially made guns. It would also require those selling the kits to mark components with a serial number. However, having no impact whatsoever on criminals. That's John Vallejo with Gun Owners of America. He says it's the criminals, not the guns, that are not being held accountable. It's, it's the inner cities that have the strictest gun control policies and the most lenient criminal justice practices that are having the, the largest uh, increases in, in, in crime and, and the highest murder rate. Biden on Monday also urged Congress to pass universal background checks for guns, raising some concerns about Second Amendment rights. That is, again, just like with the homemade firearms, nothing to do with crime or stopping crime or protecting people and everything to do with stripping people of their rights, stripping uh, the Second Amendment of its, of its meaning. Meanwhile, Biden is also calling on Congress to end liability protections for gun manufacturers, which is one of several gun control provisions currently stalled in the Senate with GOP opposition. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Howe, NTD News. Florida is taking a novel approach to improving social issues in the Sunshine State, investing in fathers. Today, Governor Ron DeSantis signed an initiative de devoting millions to the effort. He emphasized the importance of the nuclear family, saying strong fathers make for a strong society. NTD's Grace Coulter has the details. Florida is undertaking a bipartisan effort to tackle what lawmakers are calling the nationwide fatherhood crisis. Governor Ron DeSantis on Monday, joined by his two young daughters, signed a bill providing almost $70 million to the cause. He said ensuring more kids have a present and supportive father or father figure in their lives will uplift both children and society. If you look over the last many decades, uh, one of the worst social trends uh, has been the decline of fatherhood. And we do have, in many instances, a, a fatherhood crisis in this country. Uh, the fact of the matter is, uh, when you take kids that do not have a father present during their upbringing, the chance of them dropping out of school, uh, getting involved in trouble with the law, having other difficulties increases dramatically. The bill was supported by both Republicans and Democrats alike and passed both the House and Senate unanimously. Based on U.S. Census data, over 18 million children nationwide are growing up in a fatherless home. That amounts to one in four children. And according to research by Florida House lawmakers, children born in fatherless homes are two times more likely to drop out of school, and fatherless boys are three times more likely to go to jail. In addition, six in ten youth suicides and nine in ten homeless and runaway children come from fatherless homes. This is the crisis of America today. This is the civil rights movement of our time. Jack Brewer, founder and executive director of the Jack Brewer Foundation, commended Florida's efforts and said the whole country needs to follow suit. The bill will provide support for both families and youth, including educational and mentorship programs, as well as one-on-one -on -one support to encourage responsible and involved fatherhood. Funding will go towards grants aimed at helping fathers find employment, manage child support obligations, and transition from incarceration. The Florida House Speaker said the positive impact of addressing the root cause of so many social issues will be felt for generations to come. Grace Coulter, NTD News. Up next, an explosion right in Times Square caused panic and sent people running away. We hear from an eyewitness who says he thought New York City was being attacked. Stay tuned for more right after this short break. Nation Speaks, we don't just scratch the surface. We want to go wide and deep. Our viewers come away with a much richer understanding of the issues of the day. We really make a big effort to bring on different voices onto the show. We don't just talk to experts and newsmakers, which of course are extremely important, but we also want to hear from the American people. So the people who are impacted by the policies and issues that we're talking about, because what they have to say is just as important to the national conversation.
Panic at Times Square on Sunday night. Thousands of people were seen running away screaming after an explosion. NTD's Arian Pazdar has more from the crossroads of the world. Two manholes caught fire and exploded right here in Times Square. That was on Sunday at around 7 p.m. Right now the street is still closed off as you can see, but the scenes were even more chaotic right after the explosion. A lot of smoke really came quick right after the explosion. It was like an attack or maybe like an act of war. No one was injured and no power outages were reported. A defective power line reportedly caused the fire. What is it? Eyewitnesses reported hearing an explosion and then seeing people running away. A worker at a food stand just a few feet from the explosion site tells me he was just as scared as the tourists. We honestly grabbed our stuff and ran with the people as well. Immediately, we were standing across the street just watching our store, but there was, it was completely isolated right here. There was literally not a person here. Firefighters found elevated carbon monoxide levels in a building next to the explosion, but they say they were able to ventilate the building. Manhole fires more than doubled in New York City from 2020 to 2021, jumping to over 6,000 a year. Manhole fires usually happen when there is a lot of gas underground, which is then ignited by a defective power line. That sends an explosion through the path of least resistance, which is usually the manhole. Arian Pastar, NTD News, New York. A big part of NYPD officers who lie to the Civilian Complaint Review Board get away without any consequences. That's according to a new report. But the NYPD says that's not really true. The civil rights group Latino Justice released a report on Monday saying that almost half of all officers who lie to the Civil Complaint Review Board don't face any consequences. They say that around 180 officers were caught lying about interactions with civilians, arrests and more. For example, two cops said they were shot at by a young man who didn't follow their commands. According to the report, cameras later revealed the young man did follow all commands and the gun went off during an illegal search. Out of the 181 who were allegedly caught lying, 80 didn't face any consequences, 43 lost vacation days, and 42 were subject to instruction. Four were suspended. But the NYPD said in a statement to NTD, the NYPD says they think an officer's denying allegations of misconduct to avail himself of due process shouldn't be counted as lying. New York Mayor Eric Adams campaigned on a promise to get stuff done saying he would break the mold and deliver in his first 100 days in office. Well, that time has come. From tackling crime to opening up the city, we take a look at how the mayor has fared and what he said he would do. I spoke with public policy expert Daniel DeSalvo to get his take on the mayor's performance. Daniel DeSalvo from the Manhattan Institute and City College of New York, thank you so much for joining us. Now, Mayor Adams promised a lot in terms of lowering crime and reforming policing. Is there any progress we can see there about how he's delivering on those promises? Well, they've got good plans, and certainly you can see that that was the signature thing of Adams' campaign, was to reestablish kind of social order, which had been substantially frayed uh, as a result of the pandemic and protests and riots uh, in the wake of George uh, Floyd's killing by the Minneapolis police in the summer of 2020. Um, combine that in some ways with the you know poor uh, economic performance for uh, small businesses and shuttered shops, and the city had an air, you could say, of disorder. So that was Adam's signature campaign promise. I think here reinstituting some what were in the past were called broken windows policing or quality of life policing um, was uh, are are yet to bear fruit. Um, if we look at the numbers only, murders are down uh, recently, but all other forms of major crime are up by almost 44%. So it's going to take some time to see if the new policies and new leadership that Adams has instituted for the police are going to have an effect of pushing down crime, especially uh, in some of the tougher outer borough neighborhoods. What's he done so far to help the economy? Well, so far we're, we're in budget season, and so he's pr proposed a budget that uh, I, you could say for New York counts as uh, fiscal restraint. Um, the big issue long-term is getting Midtown office workers back in Midtown, um, getting people to commute from uh, the suburbs back into the city 
Um, that's, you could say, the central economic engine of the city if people are going to continue um, to work remotely, or at least partially remotely, that's going to that's really putting a big, uh, it's an existential threat, you could say, for New York's economy. I think that the mayor has probably fallen a little bit short here. New York is an extremely expensive city to do business, um, and neither the mayor nor the governor have really tried to propose many policies that would reduce taxes, taxes, licensing regulation, a few small things. Um, but the sort of cost of New York is still very high and it becoming more of an outlier relative to other cities uh, in the country. He's pledged a lot around homelessness and also the safety of the subways as a, a part of getting people back into the office. Um, how's he doing on those fronts? Well, to, to some controversy, of course, you know, the mayor has had a major, initiated a major sweep of homeless encampments throughout the city um, in an effort to, as a kind of quality of life or cleaning up the, the appearance of the city. Um, homeless advocates and others say this is a little bit too heavy handed approach that's unlikely to be effective. Um, it's sort of just push, you know, a game of whack-a-mole is somewhat what some see this is turning into. Uh, you push away one homeless encampment and another pops up elsewhere. But it shows initiative that the mayor is taking seriously exactly these quality of life things that are going to make people want to come back to, you know, in some sense, the greatest city in the world um, and be there on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, things like the subway, I think the proposals that the mayor has had here are in the right spirit. The question is still whether they'll be effective and they just haven't had enough time to mature and whether the subway um, is going to be seen as attractive. And the mayor came in on a promise to get stuff done. Do you think there's anything he needs to pay more attention to? I think the, the signature thing really remains um, how the city and the state is really going to try to address the issue of, uh, of remote work. Is that going to, ultimately, that is the big existential threat long-term for New York's economy and how the city and the state more broadly can remain competitive with many other parts of the country where taxes, regulations um, are much lower and the cost of doing business is much lower. And that becomes much more attractive um, for, and this is not just a threat for New York City, but even the surrounding um, suburbs where property taxes are very high um, are the services commensurate with that? Or is New York becoming an outlier uh, on all of these dimensions? So I think the mayor here, I think, has been a great cheerleader for New York business and he's uh, and bringing people back. But that's that's really the central threat, I think, for the long term health of the city. Daniel DeSalvo, thank you. My pleasure. We reached out to the mayor for comment. We would have loved to have heard from him, but he hasn't gotten back to us. He did tell ABC that his administration had removed more than 1,000 guns off the streets of New York, and his anti-gun unit had made more than 100 arrests. And he pointed to the safe haven beds that his administration had created for people dealing with mental health issues as markers of making the city safer. In a statement, the mayor also said his administration is just getting started and that there is much more work to be done. And coming up, Johnny Depp defends his reputation in a legal battle with his ex-wife Amber Heard, whom he accuses of falsely portraying him as a domestic abuser. And two large fires broke out in California's Bay Area over the weekend. Fortunately, no one was injured, but one blaze was so large, evidence of it could be seen from space. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. The latest chapter in Hollywood star Johnny Depp's legal battle with ex-wife Amber Heard kicked off today as a defamation trial began over allegations that Heard made about domestic abuse. And Hedy's Chenny Wu tells us more. Jury selection began Monday in a long-anticipated libel lawsuit Johnny Depp filed against his ex-wife actress Amber Heard, whom he accuses of falsely portraying him as a domestic abuser. Matrimonial attorney Judith Poller says Depp's reputation is at stake. His career is very much impacted by all of this. I think 
you know, much of it is we're also living in a time where domestic violence has really taken front and center. Depp has sued Heard for $50 million, saying she defamed him in a 2018 opinion piece in the Washington Post about surviving domestic abuse. The article doesn't mention Depp by name, but he says it clearly refers to allegations Heard made in other forums that she suffered physical abuse at his hands. Depp denies the accusations. These people, Amber and Johnny, are just relitigating their very contentious divorce. And they're just airing more and continuing that very toxic dynamic that clearly existed in their marriage. The trial is expected to last more than a month. Chenny Wu, NTD News. Over to the West Coast. Two massive fires hit California's Bay Area over the weekend, but they weren't in forests. A Home Depot in Silicon Valley was burnt to the ground and a port in the North Bay was also torched. Fortunately, no injuries were reported. NTD's David Lamb reports. This is what's left of a Home Depot after a massive five-alarm fire collapsed its roof. Everyone escaped the fire safely as no injuries were reported. As of Monday, crews remained on scene. Debris trapped under the roof is the source of some small flare-ups, according to the San Jose Fire Department. Honestly, it's just everything because it's just, it's just incredible. You never, we never expect this to happen. So all, all of our associates, they got out when it happened. All I know is that uh, the moment I go on my lunch, I come back from the parking lot. I see that everybody is um, where, standing right over there where that, uh, where the blue bin is at, like right over there in that parking spot. Uh, my manager, everyone else I know, like including my coworkers, they're all held over there. Madero Bernal said he's being transferred to another Home Depot in San Jose. He's been at this store for three years. And we believe it might be because um, on L47, we have uh, one specific spot in the roof area that, that was rarely damaged due to the rain that happened in January and February. On Saturday, April 9th, 2022, at 5.30 p.m., the local fire department received multiple calls about a fire inside a Home Depot. A full first response team was dispatched at 5.31 p.m. and arrived on scene within minutes. The fire reportedly happened in the store's lumber supply. It sent plumes of smoke into the sky and got so hot that it was seen from space. Approximately 100 firefighters responded to the five-alarm fire. The primary goal was to contain the fire from spreading to neighbor businesses within the strip mall-type structure. It included a vet hospital and another hardware store. Approximately 15 homes behind the Home Depot were evacuated and a shelter in place was issued in the surrounding area. Another fire also occurred at the city of Benicia of Solano County on Saturday. The city said the fire was extinguished as of Sunday. No injuries were reported. Crews are investigating the cause of both fires, but SJFD said there's no indication that the Home Depot fire was suspicious. David Lamb, NCD News, California. Los Angeles community colleges are plagued by fake bot students who enrolled for benefits. One professor says she has been informing administrators about it after spending a year investigating. NTD's Eileen Ang reports. So really they're, they're Kim Rich is a criminal justice professor at Pierce College. She told California insider CMAC Horami that she first suspected fake student enrollment when she noticed a third of the students in her class were anthropology majors, which she said is highly unusual. You know, you have bits and pieces from everywhere, English, drama, math, science, but you wouldn't have one third of your class from a major that was not your own. The bot students are computer programs that imitate or replace human users online. Thousands of their accounts are suspected of enrolling to receive financial aid or COVID-19 relief grants. Rich said there were many suspicious signs. The answers had nothing to do with the questions that were being posed. Not every single one of them, but there were ones mm. that stood out. And they were so unusual that the next time I saw the same one and the same one and the same one, and then I looked at the authors of the documents I realized it was all this same individual creating these assignments for these individuals. Rich was more concerned when she did not hear back from students after contacting them. After some investigating, she discovered some of the students were actually people who had passed away. 
Rich said she estimates there are anywhere between 10,000 to 15,000 bots enrolled in her district alone. She said it's costing both taxpayers and students who can't get classes that need them. We had situations where a class was full with 40 students. We had students on a waiting list. We increased the enrollment limit to 80 in less than 72 hours that class was full. Mm. It was not full with real students waiting to take that class. It actually skipped over students on the waiting list and was filled with bots, fake students. Rich said she believes her school isn't taking action because the district would lose millions in funding if her claims are true. According to state budget reports, California community colleges received $4.7 billion in COVID-19 federal relief funding, with some students receiving up to $5,000 per year. Los Angeles Community College District spokesman William Boyer told the Epic Times that he can't confirm there are bots. But according to a 2021 memo, the Vice Chancellor for Digital Innovation and Infrastructure for California Community Colleges alerted the state's community colleges about malicious and bot-related enrollment. Boyer said all is under investigation and internal review. To watch the full program, find California Insider on YouTube or Epic TV on the Epic Times website. And the Red Bull Air Force is at it again. The daredevils, who previously flew a helicopter upside down over New York City, sky surfed through a thunderstorm and streaked through LA's skyline in wingsuits, will soon be braving the skies again. This time, planning a mid-air plane swap. NTD's Dave Martin has more. It'll be an aviation first when daredevils Luke Akins and Andy Farrington swap planes mid-flight by skydiving out of and then into each other's vacant aircrafts. It's just as daring as it sounds. So plane swap is a very cool project. We're gonna fly two airplanes. I'm gonna fly one, Andy fly the other one. Nobody else in them. Go up to 12, 13,000 feet, put them in a dive, point the planes at the ground, get out of each plane, switch planes. I'll get in his plane, he'll get in my plane. So I'm gonna take off in one and land in another. Although the explanation sounds simple, the planning was 10 years in the making. The team had to create custom-made air brakes to slow the planes down to their skydiving speed of roughly 130 miles an hour. Their teams also added custom-made autopilot systems that will keep the planes in 90-degree vertical dives while also keeping them from spinning or turning to enable a stable platform to land in. The plan is for the planes to be unpiloted for roughly 30 heart-wrenching seconds as the two make their aerial swap. They'll then have to pilot the planes out of their nosedives and land them. I think I want the average viewer to take away from plane swap is just realizing that what is possible, that anything is possible. The aerial stunt will take place on April 24 in Arizona. Dave Martin, NTD News. And at the Masters, although most of the attention centered on the return of Tiger Woods, it was the suddenly hot Scotty Scheffler who starred in the win. NTD's Dave Martin has more. Just two months ago, Scotty Scheffler was still looking for his first win. With his dominant Masters performance Sunday, Scheffler suddenly has won four of his last six events and is number one in the rankings. The 25-year-old Scheffler led essentially the entire weekend and fended off Rory McIlroy's final round 64 to wear the coveted green jacket at the Masters. It seemed the only thing he wasn't ready for was talking about it. I, I didn't get to the press room in my dreams, so I don't, you guys are going to have to ask me some questions. <laughs> what he did dream about was the walk to the final hole, where he let down his guard just a little bit and ended with a somewhat irrelevant double bogey, lowering his margin of victory to three shots. I didn't break my concentration until we got onto the green on 18. Once we got onto the green, I was like, all right, I'm going to enjoy this. And then, you know, um, had some fun with it. While Scheffler cruised through the course, Tiger Woods struggled, finishing with back-to-back -back 78s, his worst Masters scores ever. Yet Woods seemed happy just to be back in competition after taking off more than a year to rehab his nearly amputated leg. A lot of different things could have happened, um, but 14 months, um, I'm able to tee it up and play in the Masters. As for the future, Woods told Sky Sports that he plans to play the British Open in July, but is unsure for next month's PGA Championship or the U.S. Open in June. Dave Martin, NTD News.
Coming up, some U.S. consulate employees are allowed to leave Shanghai. The city announced it's easing measures amid concerns about its strict lockdown. But why does the official notice still urge residents to stay inside? And France sees the results of its first round of presidential elections. Emmanuel Macron and his rival Marine Le Pen gear up for what's expected to be a tightly fought round two. That and more when we return here on NTD News. Navigating a world of economic madness, you need to have the right guide. What do today's decisions mean for your tomorrow? We ask why, what's the alternative? Uncover the deeper reasons and the hidden influences and highlight the real opportunities for profit. At Entity Business, we connect the dots for you. Good evening. Shanghai lockdown restrictions are worrying the U.S. Embassy, so it's now allowing some employees to leave the city. NTD's Tiffany Meyer from China in Focus has the details. The pandemic outbreak in China is still going on. An update from the U.S. Embassy in Shanghai. The facility had given the go-ahead for non-emergency employees and their families to leave China on a voluntary basis. That's according to a statement released on Saturday. The notice takes the current surge of COVID-19 cases in Shanghai into account, plus the impact of restrictions imposed by Chinese authorities. Also, a pop-up on the website shows a level three travel advisory, urging American citizens to reconsider travel to China due to, quote, arbitrary enforcement of local laws and COVID-19-related restrictions. On top of that, the advisory specifies the risk of parents getting separated from their children under a local virus prevention policy. According to Reuters, a U.S. consulate employee wrote a plea on China's popular social platform WeChat last Tuesday. He asked staff to spare food for local troops, saying Marines have depleted their food and can no longer get delivery. They only had vacuum-sealed rations left. A Marines official responded later, saying the troops are fine and aren't short on food. Shanghai revised plans to ease lockdown orders in some areas starting Monday. Right now, 26 million people are trapped at home. Under the new plan to ease lockdown measures, 11 million residents will remain trapped at home, while the other 15 million can leave their homes but are still confined to their neighborhoods or districts. As a step towards the partial easing, Shanghai is grouping residential units into three categories, measuring their level of infection risk. According to the official policy, they will allow appropriate activity for those in neighborhoods where no positive cases have been reported for two weeks. But more than 40 percent of the city's neighborhoods will have to stay at home under strict lockdown orders, as before. Pressure from residents has been mounting. People are getting increasingly frustrated as the curbs drag on, leaving many to struggle with finding enough food and medicine. Residents are also sharing stories online describing how some have died of other illnesses or conditions because they couldn't provide negative virus test results in time and hospitals refuse to treat them. Despite those impacts, questions are still circulating about how much Shanghai authorities will ease the lockdown. Shanghai carried out another round of mass COVID-19 testing just last Saturday and tested residents at least twice in one day. And on Sunday, the head of the epidemic response group from China's National Health Commission commented, saying daily infection rates are still high in the city and that residents should take it seriously. An unusual operation over the weekend. China delivered an anti-aircraft system to one of Russia's allies Saturday, Serbia. Beijing confirmed the delivery on Monday, describing it as regular military supplies and insisting that it has nothing to do with the current situation. China recently dispatched an Air Force transport aircraft to deliver regular military supplies to Serbia. 
Six Chinese Air Force cargo planes carried the advanced anti-aircraft system to Serbia. The planes passed over at least two NATO member states in the process, Turkey and Bulgaria. Experts regarded the move as a sign of China's expanding global influence. It also marks the Chinese Air Force's largest overseas delivery to date. At the same time, Western countries are voicing concerns that weapons buildup in the Balkans could threaten the fragile peace in the region, especially during the war in Ukraine. The Chinese missile system delivered to Serbia is comparable to the American Patriot system and the Russian S-300 surface-to-air missile system, though it has a shorter range than the S-300. Serbia will be the first nation in Europe to operate Chinese missiles. French leader Emmanuel Macron and challenger Marine Le Pen qualified on Sunday for what promises to be a tightly fought presidential election runoff on the 24th of April, pitting a pro-European economic liberal against a nationalist. After five years in power, Macron's abrasive style has upset many, while Le Pen has succeeded in softening her image. We've got more from NTD's Eddie Aitken. French President Emmanuel Macron, fresh off a first-round victory in his quest for re-election, jumped straight back onto the campaign trail on Monday. He hunted for more voters in France's former industrial heartland in the north, a blue-collar stronghold of rival Marine Le Pen, who he will face in a second round. Please think of France as impoverished. This is also why I am here. I am thinking of them. They live in misery, and that's why we are fighting for employment aid. I'm a teacher, and I go see them. There are people here who die of hunger. I see. Macron and Le Pen came out on top on Sunday's first round vote, setting up a repeat of the 2017 runoff. Macron received almost 28%, while Le Pen stood at 23%. Le Pen held a meeting on Monday with her allies, signing autographs as she left her campaign headquarters. The leader of the Rassemblement National Party was confident. We are humble. We welcome these results with a lot of humility. But I think Marine Le Pen will be elected president in a few days, because I think the majority of French people, 70%, have not voted for Emmanuel Macron. They did not want Macron to be re-elected. Macron is vying to become the first president in two decades to win a second term, but faces a tough challenge from Le Pen. A UK-born terrorist is facing a life sentence for the murder of Conservative Member of Parliament Sir David Amos. A jury took just 18 minutes to convict him. It follows a seven-day trial in which Ali Harbi Ali admitted to carrying out the attack and plotting to kill other lawmakers, including Parliament member Michael Gove. Ali Harbi Ali was a committed terrorist. He um, was self-radicalized by his own admission in court, um, and he spent a lot of time online. Um, and his, his plan was formed over many, many years. An ISIS fanatic, Ali carried out the attack at Sir David's constituency surgery in Leon-Sea in Essex in October last year. A Tory MP was stabbed more than 20 times and died at the scene. Ali told the trial he had no regrets. He's said to be sentenced on Wednesday for murder and preparing acts of terrorism. British police guidance says male police officers who identify as female can strip search female suspects. Retired Superintendent Kathy Parkman brought the guidance to light. She describes it as a devastating blow to women's trust in the police. NTD's Jane Werrell has more for us. This is one of the latest transgender issues that sparked a debate on women's rights. It's reported that guidance from the National Police Chiefs Council, which represents senior police officers, says that once an officer has transitioned, they can search someone of the same gender as their own lived gender. In other words, a transgender police officer born male can strip search a female suspect. Now, Superintendent Cathy Larkman, who's recently retired from the police force, revealed this guidance to the Daily Mail. She said that 
women are not even an afterthought in this guidance and that this isn't inclusive of women and doesn't respect their sex. Newspaper Pro reports that the guidance says that if a suspect's refusal of being searched is deemed to be based on discriminatory views, then consideration should be given for it to be recorded as a non-crime hate incident. Now, um, we, we asked the National Police Chief's Council's spokesperson for a statement on this, and they, they sent us a statement, um, which I'm going to read out now. They said that all searches are dealt with on a case-by-case -case basis after consideration by a custody sergeant based on the response of the detainee. All searches are carried out in line with the officer or staff member's training and legal authority, and they added that they take into account their responsibilities under both the Equalities Act 2010 and Police and Criminal Evidence Act 1984. Jane Worrell, NTD News, London. Coming up, a professional glassblower from Ghana who turns waste into works of art. We'll hear his story when we return after this break. Now, the story of Ghana's only certified professional glassblower. He uses recycled materials in his work and says he imagines a country free from foreign glass. David Doyle has more. In the burned and blistered hands of Michael Tete, molten glass is transformed into elaborate works of art. He is Ghana's only certified professional glassblower and he's on a mission to use his talents to benefit the environment. It's like life, it, it, it expands. Life also expands. It's like a journey. Yes, you go from one after the, the other. And for Tete, that journey starts here, among piles of discarded bottles. His glasswork is created only from recycled materials collected from across the capital, Accra. But this one is very sticky and it's good for a glass blower. Ghana imports around 300 million US dollars in glass and ceramic products each year, according to the Observatory for Economic Complexity. Around 80% comes from China. Tete says the majority of Ghana's glass waste ends up in landfill or scattered in the streets. We, we don't have a, 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 a collection process. Collection process. And we don't want the, the, the broken glasses to be flowing around like that, or they will dump it in the landfill. And if we are using recycle, we can get money. Yes, as we want to recycle. Recycle is cheap. The 44-year-old hails from Odomase Krobo, one of the epicenters of Ghana's traditional glass bead culture. He wants to build on that heritage and envisions a Ghana free from foreign glass. Tete has trained and hired several assistants. He hopes they will one day run their own workshops. He also wants to expand his own premises, giving a work opportunity and creative outlet to more people in his community. We will not go to any, any country like China to maybe... Uh, 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 uh buy any material from that we want to use in, in Ghana. Let us, I wanted to, I want to make Ghana beautiful. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.